Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols. We are here for episode number 10. Is this number 10? This is number 10. Wow. This is in the universe of respectability, in my opinion, at least. Well, I take your word for it. I, this is all new to me, and it's uh, you are the director, and I take direction. Well, so if you say we're in the universe of respectability, I'll go for it. I'm happy to do that. You are on your way right now out of Honolulu for a few days, correct? More than a few days. I'll be leaving tomorrow. I'll be visiting uh, your brother and sister and their families in Oregon. Then I'm coming down going flying to Florida to visit my sister. And then I'll be going up to Atlanta to see if I can connect with the person that's uh, directing this podcast and his family. Well, I am super excited about seeing you in person. You are an awfully long way away on that tiny island in the South Seas. So it'll be neat to see you. That's true. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the children. It was so interesting because you and I talked on the telephone a couple of nights ago and um, just catching up and and uh, talking a little bit, I guess, about your trip. And uh, we got to talking about D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. And it was such a fun conversation offline that I was reminded about why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place, because these are the kind of conversations that We've done a little bit, uh, just one-on-one, and it's been uh, just a huge treat to uh, be able to record them. Well, I hope that uh, the listeners are getting some pleasure out of it. Yeah, exactly. I I am too. I've gotten some good feedback, so I think that that people are, and we want to return to the man that uh, you dubbed the master, the Shakespeare of the novel. Henry James. Wow, but that's that's good. We'll 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 go we'll go with that. Well, he's certainly the American the American uh, master. By the way, the term master was one that was used that, that was applied to him. I mean, uh, we didn't I didn't create this. By the end of his career, when few people were reading him, but the real cognoscente who were you know recognized what his contribution was and just referred to him as the master. He'd written a short story called The Lesson of the Master, one of his wonderful short stories about artists and writers. And perhaps that's why some of the people started using that term for him. Well, today, Dad, I I want to talk about marriage because I see that as uh, one of the integral themes of The Portrait of a Lady. But why don't you begin, if you don't mind, by giving us an overview of the plot of the portrait of a lady, and uh, we'll start. We'll start there. Well, it's a story uh, about a young woman, Isabel Archer, who's 
who's orphaned, lives in upstate New York, and uh, has a distant aunt who lives in London, who lives in England, and is married to Daniel Touchett, Mrs. Touchett, who visits her in, in, in New York and decides to take her under her wing, so invites her to visit the family in England. So this young woman, Isabel Archer, comes to England. She's very attractive. She's very sprightly. She's got a, you know, good wit about her. She is immediately taken up by young, young men, uh, who are interested in her, uh, person and, you know, want to pursue her. Her cousin, who is something of an invalid, is very attracted to her. Mm-hmm. Her uncle is taken with her as well. Everybody's taken with Isabel Archer. She gets, to, to move to fast forward, she gets a marriage proposal from a very wealthy lord, which is considered one of the you know one of the great coups for a young woman, and she turns him down. This act of turning down a lord, which of course we talked last time, Henry James says, an act like that is an act. It's an it's an incident. It's part of a plot. Mm-hmm. And so her cousin Ralph and her uh, you know persuades his father to leave an inheritance for the young woman because he thinks she needs to uh, have something. She needs the freedom that money provides. And in this world, in James's world, money provides freedom. Now, what you do with that freedom is another question. Well, to make a long story short, she inherits more than more than she expected. The, the Ralph had persuaded the father to give her more than more than he originally intended. Now she's really an heiress. Now, as an heiress, of course, she has the world at her fingertips. Mm-hmm. What is she going to do with it? Well, to compress, she travels. She meets a man, Gilbert Osmond, who was an expatriate living in Italy and who was the perfect model. I want to say the perfect model of a gentleman, you know, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan, but the perfect model of a connoisseur, a man of taste, uh, an esthete, and she's taken with him. Everybody in Isabel's circle recognizes that he's not what he's cracked up to be. You know, this is all surface. Nonetheless, Isabel will hear none of it. Uh, she's convinced that her taste and her judgment is superior to all her friends' detractions or debunking of him, and she goes ahead and marries him. Right. Now, Gilbert Osmond has a friend who has befriended Isabel named Madame Merle. And so Madame Merle has actually introduced her to Gilbert and has, in a sense, been actually a kind of a chaperone. And, you know, she's created the match, although Isabel doesn't really recognize this. Mm-hmm. The law short, I mean, to compress a very long novel, is the marriage is a disaster. Gilbert Osmond is an esthete, and the esthete has a kind of, uh, you may say, a kind of particular cruelty, you know, and Gil- and that cruelty is, you know, visited upon Isabel. Mm-hmm. And he has a daughter, Pansy, who he treats as a little flower, but who has no freedom and is completely under his uh, direction. At some point, this marriage, of course, now being a disaster, Isabel comes home to her home and she sees Madame Merle and Gilbert Osmond in the drawing room together. And she notices that Gilbert Osmond is sitting, Madame Merle is standing. Now, from the point of view of protocol, a man doesn't sit while a woman is standing. 
And she recognizes there's an intimacy between them that she had not noticed, more than just being friendship. Uh, This kind of familiarity, this intimate appearance suddenly strikes her. Well, she then spends an evening, one of the great scenes in the book, is she spends an evening after that recognition starting to go over her whole life, her whole experience with Osmond and Madame Merle, recognizes, looking into those flames in the early morning hours, she recognizes that she's been had, that she's been manipulated, that the marriage was, you know, set up, and that Gilbert Osmond's daughter, Pansy, is really the daughter of Madame Merle as well. So the kind of betrayal and the kind of manipulation, which in her innocence, in her sense that she could do no wrong, that her natural goodness will, of course, lead to, you know, good results. She discovers what a tragic mistake she's made. To complete the story or to summarize some of the plot, the daughter is in love with the young man, but of course the father will not allow the marriage. Right. He's not privileged enough. He's, he's too low on the social scale. Exactly. Now, here's an example where Gilbert Osmond has nothing but he imagines that he is a man of super superior taste, and therefore his daughter mm-hmm. is is worthy of a prince, so to speak. And uh, Isabel takes a takes a leave, and be, when her cousin is dying, she she sort of uh, stands up to her husband and says she's going to she's going back to England for the for the uh, funeral. And in the course of going back to England, Casper. Goodwood, is that the name? Goodwood? Gasper, you know, the one that's in the American that keeps showing sure, up yeah. in the book, uh, you know, who really loves her. And she recognizes for the first time that not only does he truly love her, but he is the perfect mate for her. And her own feelings for him are very dramatic. And of course, there's an element of sexual discovery there, which is very, very muted. But for all readers, This is the time for Isabel to say, bye-bye, Gilbert, stay in England, and take up with Casper. But she doesn't. She returns back to Rome because, of course, she's made a commitment to Pansy, and she becomes a sense she feels responsible now for overseeing Pansy and for protecting her from a father whose sadism and cruelty is almost beyond compare. Now that's the short that's the short narrative as far as I can remember. I mean that's amazing, Dad, and that's uh that's really helpful. The only um it wasn't as obvious to me at the very end why she was going back, but I guessed that it was probably out of a sense of protection for Pansy. All right, well that was fabulous. Just a quick aside, maybe a quick humorous aside. As I as I read this, I came across a phrase that was often used. And uh, it's a phrase that's used very differently today, but it's about when a man and woman are are making love. And when I hear that phrase, I think of sexual intimacy. But in uh, in this novel, that phrase didn't mean that, did it? It was just a phrase that meant a man and a woman were maybe being flirtatious with one another, right? You mean you mean making love? Making love. Yeah, making love yes. does not have that that meaning of sexual congress, not completely. Right. I mean, it was, you know. 
but it's just it's a little bit humorous because that's yeah. how I hear it today. And it's not how it's used in the book. So it's one little example of how um, how words and phrases can change and grow and mutate in meaning over time. I have to throw out an, uh, an amusing comment about James made by a critic. This is after, well, after, after late James. Don't forget, The Portrait of a Lady was published in 1881. James is writing down through the uh, early 1900s. So his later mm-hmm. novels what's known as the late late period, the, mainly the ambassadors, the portrait of a lady and the wings of the dove, the three great uh, triumphant novels of his late years, have a much deeper, a much darker picture of sexuality. But these novels were published. One critic wrote an essay called In Darkest James, and he said, if the readers realized what James was writing about, his books would be banned or not published. But since it's so hard to figure out his sentences, nobody pays any attention to it. <laughs> well, I haven't read those later books, but this the portrait of a lady was was more clear, although yeah. admittedly at the very end, I made a note when it says that she shared a kiss with her former boyfriend that James describes as white lightning. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I didn't read more into it than that. Although you can read more into it, I mean, you can. Yes, yes, it's a way okay, of fair enough. It's a way of s- describing it. Okay, Dad. You know, I know that I can't get into Henry James's mind, and in my desire to uh, interpret texts, I try to be careful and deal with just what's written down on the page. Uh, that's what I have access to. And as I, as I was working through this book, uh, I, a lot can be said, it's a long book, but the, a, a couple themes really stand out to me. One, the theme of independence and the other, the theme of marriage and marriage as a, a means of, um, moving one away from independence. Let me unpack that for a moment and maybe get some of your thoughts on this little exercise in trying to trace a theme through the book. And then I want to pull the camera lens back and think about our own thoughts about marriage. But towards the beginning of the book, one of the characters, Henrietta Stackpole, who spends a lot of time with uh, Isabel's, uh, with Isabel's family, she says about marriage, it's everyone's duty to get married. And I think she says that uh, because, uh, you know, everyone's expecting Isabel is going to find a husband. And so Henrietta throws that out there. And that's that's towards the beginning of the book. So you just have this idea that this is the general expectation. She doesn't and get it's married, not necessarily though. Well, but that's what she says. So clearly she fell short of her own medicine. So then Isabel gets that, you know, fabulous one would think this fabulous invitation to marriage. And she says this when she reflects about uh, turning uh, Lord Warburton down. She says, I've always been intensely determined to be happy. And I've often believed I should be. I've told people that. You can ask them. But it comes over me very now and then that I can never be happy in any extraordinary way, not by turning away, by separating myself from life, from the usual chances and dangers, 
from what most people know and suffer. So she's explaining why she doesn't want to live this life as this lady of the house. Uh, I got the sense that that she wants a more common life where she has where she can be in touch with the world as it is. So at that point, uh, eventually, as you said, she gets married. It's awful, and there's no reading between the lines. We're told, and now I'm 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 quoting about Gilbert's lack of affection for uh, Isabel. He despised her. She had no traditions and the moral horizon of a Unitarian minister. Poor Isabel, who had never been able to understand Unitarianism. That seems like a strange comment. Uh, Let me stop right there. That was after it was said her sentiments were worthy of a radical newspaper or a Unitarian preacher. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit, that, that exchange? Not exchange, that description of Isabel? I think that uh, Osmond is really a figure that James spends an enormous amount of time dissecting. And he's dissecting, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of a shallow, pretentious person who thinks that the kind of superiority that he has because of his taste makes him somebody special. In reality, he's mm-hmm. nothing. He has no special talent, and mm-hmm. he has no heart. Isabel, on the other hand, is someone who is all, I mean, she's basically a beautiful young person. Mm-hmm. What James is really doing, and a beautiful young person who who's smart enough to recognize that there might be more to life than just being eye candy for a Lord Warburton. Right. Now, she doesn't know what it is exactly, and she can't be expected to know because she's headstrong and she's young. And, you know, like young people, they believe they know everything. That's right. You mentioned last time in our last episode that she was uh, 28 years old, uh, a millennial, you said. I I, I said that. I, I, I thought that was a kind of interesting observation. It just came to me because you think about, you know, we talk about millennials so much. If you think about the experience that, Isabel Archer undergoes and what she comes out at the end as, I mean, you can't think of a millennial today. Not that they don't have the intelligence or anything. Their whole lives are so different. I right. mean, in the end, you know, you everybody, everybody wor- wonders why Isabel goes back to uh, Osmond. But, you know, there's an element of in the 19th century generally, you see it, and you see it in James as well. There's an element of belief in self-sacrifice. That is not really common today. Okay, okay. Today, we only think of self-sacrifice as martyrs. But right. it's the idea that you do something, not for yourself, but for somebody else, and because you just have no choice. So when when she's described as having the moral horizon of a Unitarian minister, I think of... Um, the great, well, not the great, but the mantra of Unitarianism, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man in the neighborhood of Boston. Okay. And that's that, right? That this, this is the idea of, you know, benevolent father, brotherly love. And so she was, she was a, a, a good person. So here's what happens as you put it. She goes back to garden court. Uh, Ralph dies. She's reunited with her old beau. And, uh, to get her back, dad, This is what he says. He says to her, we, so she's married. Now it's a horrible marriage. And uh, 
One might even argue she had biblical grounds for divorce, but I'm not going to go there right now. But this is what her old boyfriend says. We can do absolutely as we please. To whom under the sun do we owe anything? What is it that holds us? What is it that has the smallest right to interfere in such a question as this? So that that's a pretty dramatic statement. Like, though you're married, who has the right to keep you from, from happiness? Mm-hmm. And you're right, at that point, as the reader is, is experiencing her life, your heart tends, it, it wants to sink. Henry James has brought us to the place where your heart wants to sink at the thought of her going back to Gilbert because he's just such a loathsome man. That's such a wonderful way of putting it. I, that's that's really that's terrific, Aaron. Yes, your heart does want to sink, but she goes back to him. You know, Jane Campion, the uh, the director, the uh, Down Under director, did a did a version of this book as a film, The Portrait of a Lady. It's an absolute disaster. But of course, it's you can see it's every feminist wants to remake Elizabeth Archer at the end of the book. Right. And it is, I think there, I left with a bit of a question mark, not knowing exactly why she went back. It was more clear to you that she went back to be the savior of Pansy, her stepdaughter. But dad, my question for you, if we could move into the thinking about the reality that this book cannot be understood without grappling with what marriage is, uh, what do you think a reader is going to walk away thinking about marriage. Well, in this particular book, and today, any reader today would say, why don't you just get a divorce? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, that would not even be a question. The thing is, as I see it, if if you look at novels generally, this novel is one perfect example. Novels really try to deal with the successes and failures mostly failures of human relations, whether you want to call it marriage or not, but that's what they're about. They're about human relations Mm -hmm. and the successes and failures of those relations. In the tragic novels, they're mostly failures. Now, whether the failures are conditions of circumstance or whether the conditions of character, of course, this is always, always the issue. You know, novels of novels that are adventurous spend more time with the circumstances and novels like James's spend more time with the character. And for James, you know, I mean, James was a great believer in freedom. People should have the freedom to experience the world on their own terms, and they should be sensitive enough to recognize everything that they experience and make sense out of it or respond to it. But they can make mistakes, terrible mistakes. And Isabel, a perfectly wonderful person, makes a terrible mistake, marrying Gilbert. And and so James deals with, he deals with money, because money is at the core of this. And he deals with morals, people's sense of what is right and what is wrong. Right. And they take them together. They can be instruments for great freedom, or they can be instruments for destruction. I think there's something about a, a, a broken marriage that is extremely painful I would say even today, even though there's largely differing views of marriage, even though the, the the popular view of marriage is diluted when compared to what James's readers would have uh, would have thought, there's something especially tragic about the dissolution of a marriage. I think of um, 
Hemingway's short story, the sh- the is it Dad the short, the short and happy life of Francis McCombe. And uh, there you you see this this uh, brazen, mm-hmm. I guess brazen adultery, like right in right in his face. And at least you know, for me reading it as someone with a very, I don't know how else to put it, at a very high view of marriage. Uh, but I think anyone reading that would just be aghast at the way you know this wife flaunted her freedom to betray her husband so publicly there's just something about a broken commitment that i think is supposed to is supposed to to cut us up on the inside and so this whole novel being built about a broken marriage it's really a, it's really a painful thing to read and i wonder I think that that James. I wonder is James trying to say, you know, we're putting we're putting too much weight on this institution of marriage. We need to think less highly of it. And so I guess I'm trying to get a little bit into his head. I just I don't know exactly what he thinks about marriage, but I'm wondering what you think he's wanting the reader to conclude about the institution of marriage. That's a very good question and one that uh, sort of grabs me from sort of the side. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure that the institution of marriage is the issue, really. I think it's really the way in which people come together and the way in which they discover each other and what happens in the process. Now, in the marriage, if in the case of the portrait of a lady, it's a disaster, as we know. There are other cases, so many of us other ex- stories, there are plenty of bad marriages. But I think it's really one of the questions is, I think, is, is, you know, the view of human relations. James's view is that people are very complex. Their motives are complex and often hidden from them. They're capable of great cruelty. And you mix that all up into a story, you get uh, modern life. The marriage itself is not, I think, the issue. It's, the institution of marriage is not the issue. Divorce by this time, why is while it's still not common, it's not the great disaster it was, say, in the middle of the 19th century when you have people like John Stuart Mill having to write about, you know, divorce as being something we should recognize. I mean, and of course, in James's circle, he knew plenty of people who got divorced. But I don't know if that takes any account of it. Of what you're talking about. Well, I think the reason the, the reason that I might think it's more about marriage is because I know that I, I see this picture of Isabel and she's a young woman who wants what, you know, every young woman or man wants is happiness. And I think the the assumption is often that 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 marriage is the pathway to happiness. And uh, you know, a good marriage is one that's gonna make me happy. And uh, as a as a as a Christian, I think that happiness is certainly a component of marriage. I'm happy to say that I have a happy marriage, but at the same time, I don't think that happiness is the uh, ultimate goal of marriage. The aspect of marriage that it, that includes or requires commitment, and that commitment which is able to influence a person, make a person feel safe help a person not just be loved, but have a context where self-sacrifice makes sense. This is a safe relationship to experience self-sacrifice. 
I mean, all that is so deep and so profound. And uh, that's exactly what Isabel didn't get. And so I do think it's about maybe more about marriage than simply about about relationships. Uh, I don't know what to say. So maybe I should ask you, Dad, what do you think marriage is? Because I think we come we come with these definitions when we're reading these books. Well, I think you make a wonderful you you make a wonderful uh, description. It's a wonderful description of marriage. It's a wonderful description of the possibilities of what two people coming together can look forward to. But the reality is, in in you know how much of that is you know how much of that do you find in life? And when writers are writing you know books about what they see. They don't usually write books. I mean, if you want to write books in which people live happily ever after, you write comedies. Comedies, you know, mm-hmm. end with the marriage. But it doesn't go after the marriage. The, the comedy ends in the, with the marriage. The next page, the tragedy, is after the marriage. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the, way, that's the way writers, uh, you know, I think artists tend to, uh, tend to deal with these, these, this issue. And, of course, everyone's struggling to find the right, the right, the balance, but people, <laughs> you know, I, there's a, there's a line I never forgot in an interview with Graham Greene, who was one of my, you know, I think one of my great uh, heroes of the 20th century novel and Greene wrote marvelous books. And somebody was interviewing and said to him, you know, well, look at all the books you've written. Aren't you really, aren't you basically, aren't you proud of yourself at having done this, achieved this? And Greene said, you know, they're just books. He said, I, you know, I've been successful with books, but I've been a failure at human relations. I mm-hmm. can never get that out of my out of my head. Here's the man who's achieved beyond what any any writer could expect. And he looks and he answers, and well, he was a strange man, but still, he says, I've been a failure at human relations. Now, whether that's true or not, I have no way of knowing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's super interesting, and uh, there is such a dichotomy between someone's public life and someone's private life, and relationships are inevitably really, really hard. But at least, at least in these books written in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, there was at least a, a common understanding. And let me let me throw out there what I think the common understanding of marriage was, and why I think your heart sinks at the end of the portrait of a lady. I mean, you can tell me what you think, you can agree or disagree, but I think the common understanding of marriage in 19th century America would have been that this is a covenant uh, ordained by God, that this is not merely a, um, not merely a legal arrangement, but there is uh, there is a sense in which you've got two parties who, uh, they believe in God. They believe this is holy matrimony. There's something very significant about that. So I think that would have been largely accepted. Depending on where you stood on the religious spectrum, it would have meant more or less to you, but largely accepted. I think that there would have been agreement that marriage was not for everyone. You know, so Henry Henrietta Stackpole may say that it's everyone's duty to get married, but you pointed out she wasn't married. And I think at least a, a solid understanding of marriage would have included the reality that, you know, marriage doesn't define us. You know, you're not less than if you're not married. So there would have been an agreement about that. I think there would have been an agreement that, uh, you know, that there are occasions where divorce is actually 
you know, permissible. Like there's not this expectation that, you know, a husband, I guess, or a wife can do absolutely anything and you're sort of stuck in this bond. I mean, there are in a fallen world horrible things that can appropriately lead to the end of a marriage. At its best, marriage is more than a simple relationship between a man and a woman, but in the Christian understanding, it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so that brings a lot of weight and a lot of baggage, if you will, to marriage as well, because you're recognizing, you know, you've got uh, a husband who's supposed to sacrifice himself for his wife, which is the language you even brought out, self-sacrifice. Where does that idea come from? Well, that's at the heart of marriage by its very definition. And a bride who honors her husband. And it's an institution, though, that for all those reasons, because all of that is there and is sort of the public perception of marriage, when that is abused, the way Gilbert Osmond abused marriage with Isabel Archer, it becomes something of great, great gravity and an occasion for moral outrage. And yet, one can understand, given that high view of marriage, why Isabel Archer would go back, for good or for ill, why she would go back. Well, Aaron, all I can say is, your congregation is very, is very. Uh, it's good that they have you. I mean, you present the picture. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, that's really, it's really a remarkable statement. But, you know, there's another aspect that you're not looking at. People get married sure. in the 19th century. People got married for very different reasons. A woman that, for example, who's, uh, you know, who was a widow and had children. I mean, she needed somebody to support her. She needed help. If you were out on the, uh, in the plains and you're on a prairie right. schooner, you know, marriage was really a necessity in some cases. Uh, men who were single needed marriage for right. sex. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons right. that people got married. I mean, you take James's great friend, Edith Wharton, who was a great novelist. The first great book, The House of Mirth, the heroine of that book, Lily Barth, has to get married because she has no way of supporting herself otherwise. She's lived right. beyond her means, and she's not, she's not wealthy enough to 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 hang out in the circles of, of of upper New York, and she has no alternatives, and she can't get the husband. So I mean, it's not like she's looking for marriage as a great as a great consummation of some covenant. She's looking for it, in other words, in order to survive. There's that whole world of economic and uh, shall we say, you know, crass economic and sexual pursuits or needs that uh, that enter into why people often get married. Well, I guess, I mean, I totally agree. And I would say that you, you certainly see what you just said. You see throughout the Bible, you see marriages of necessity. So there are passages where if a widow is very young, she should get married. Why? Because it's not safe to be young and single and a woman in the ancient world. And, and, and one could argue there's some safety in marriage, even in the modern world. You even have passages in the New Testament that say, look, it's really good to be single. Interestingly, I mean, it's a fascinating you know, verse of the Bible. It says it's really great to be single. Uh, you, can, you can get a lot of stuff done. But it says if you're burning with lust, <laughs> it's better to get married. 
But I think that the point that's really that I'm trying to bring up is let's say someone needs to get married out of necessity, as you're pointing out, as has been a historical reality. Well, what a blessing to realize that even though you're getting married out of necessity, what you're marrying into is still a glorious, beautiful thing. Well, that's assuming that the, you know, the person that you're marrying is a glorious and wonderful being. I mean, if you're getting married well, out of necessity, you don't often have the opportunity to choose that, uh, that freely. It's not like you can just sort of go swiping on Tinder trying to find the perfect mate. You know? Right, right. And so there, there, are, there are so many bad, bad marriages and uh, so many bad people. And uh, I certainly wouldn't want to do anything to you know, give anyone a, a green light to be horrible because marriage is a covenant. I'm just trying to say that as I read these books that you're recommending, and all of them so far, except for Walden, <laughs> have really have, have marriage at the core, I'm reading it through those those that Christian worldview and recognizing it's just an it's a horrible thing when something so beautiful is uh just abused the way Gilbert abused his marriage to Isabel. And I think if you have a low view of marriage, if you're part of like a, a hookup culture, that I think it's gonna take some of the punch out of the book in all honesty. Uh, that's an interesting observe. I mean, I, I've never thought about it that way, but uh, I don't know. I think people, even young people, even millennials, they're still romantic. They still like to believe that uh, when their person- There's someone that, out there for them. That's right. And then with the person that they meet and that they feel, you know, understands them and they understand it's going to be beautiful. And, you know, they're going to walk, you know, walk down to the seashore and, you know, they'll all be looking at the stars. I mean, and who wouldn't yeah. want to believe that? I mean, if you're not romantic when you're young, I mean, there's something wrong with you, frankly. <laughs> I mean, everybody should believe in that. You know, you know, if you're 18 years old and you think, oh, romance. And, you know, young people often say this because they're the children of divorce. The parents are divorced. They'll say, well, I never want to get married. But I mean, they say that, but I don't think they really mean that. What they really mean is they don't want to get divorced. And uh, they're afraid to say I'm going to get married because they think that'll get it'll lead to divorce. But underneath, you know, who would be young, you know, and not want not believe in romance if you didn't if if people didn't believe in us, young people didn't believe in romance. I mean, the whole movie industry, the whole the whole song industry would suddenly disappear overnight. Yeah. But the writers, when they approach this, the artists, you know, they're not writing it. As young men, they are writing it as young men, but as they get older, often, you know, their views and their experience suddenly forces them to take more, yeah. more contradictory or complicated views. I mean, I think that's a great observation that, you know, the young, they want romance. They want many, not all, but many, they want someone, they want someone to be, to, to love them. They want to be loved regardless of how we may talk about marriage today. There is something attractive about commitment. I think that's in our bones. So on one hand, as a Christian pastor, I am trying to say, I'm trying to say that, that there's something good about wanting marriage. And at the same time, I need to come up and say, yeah, but marriage isn't ultimate. Marriage isn't everything. You're not defined by another person. You know, I would never, I would say as a Christian, you're defined by your relationship with God, not by your relationship with your husband or with your wife. But what if you don't have that relationship with God? What then defines you? Well, I would say you're, it's that lack of relationship that is the most important thing about you. 
Yeah, that's that would be where I where I land. But I think that we live in a world where, you know, people want to be identified by, you know, by their wealth, by their wife, by their 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 stature in society and none of those things should define us. Uh I do think uh we're to be defined by God and our relationship with him. Uh well, I I can't disagree that that's a way of, of it's, that's a way of being defined, but I mean that's not the only way of being defined and I think to put wealth and status as the alternative is not exactly the only solution. I mean, look, I'm not successful in marriage. I've not been successful in marriage. I mean, I don't I'm not proud of it, but uh you know, I can say was I a failure? Well, I don't know it was a failure, but it was a marriage, you know, that uh dissolved. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not sure I'm one I'm one on the other side that I should be having this conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I think maybe you should be talking with someone who's a little more I mean, I feel the need to to have the conversation about what defines us only because uh, as someone who's such a strong advocate of marriage, I feel they need to come back and say, as much as I value marriage, you know, I don't think I'm not defined by my marriage and I don't think anybody should be. But you're, it's a longer, it's another episode about what what defines us otherwise. I'm I'm giving a, a you know, an elevator version of that particular of that particular answer. I think it's more than an elevated version. I think you give her a very, uh, you give a very uh, eloquent description of it. And I think anybody, that's why I made the comment about your congregation. They're very lucky to have you. And uh, I'm, I'm very uh, proud of you as uh, I'm very proud to be your father, to be honest. I think despite well, the fact that you're a pastor and not a rabbi, I mean, I've come to terms with that. Sort of. <laughs> Well, Dad, that's a great place to leave it. The next time we meet uh, for episode number 11, the plan is for us to both be in Atlanta. And uh, I'm really excited about that. So, Dad, uh, safe travels. Happy Thanksgiving 2019, which is right around the corner. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to talk with you. And I'll look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.